this morning, and that's um, leading ourselves. Last week, we, we started looking at biblical leadership, and I want to carry on with that theme this week, and I want to look at the, the biblical leadership pattern of, the, we, we looked at church leadership last week. What does that mean? What does that look like? And this morning, I want to focus on what does it mean to lead ourselves well? And what is that all about anyway? Why is that so important? Because honestly, I think it's probably one of those, uh, what the Bible refers to as little foxes. Um, there's stories in the Bible where, where people would be in factions warring against one another. And, and it, as terrible as it was, what they would do is they would capture foxes with these bushy tails and they would set their tails on fire. And they would release them into someone else's farm or field or vineyard or whatever. And these foxes in terror would run around trying to extinguish the fire, but it would set fire to their neighbor's properties. Isn't that terrible? And that's what that phrase, deal with the little foxes, is all about. And so, honestly, friends, I think for ourselves, if we are going to walk into the fullness of God's promises over our lives, what I saw with Abraham is a man that knew who he was, knew who his God was. He faced the facts. Graham came and presented facts this morning. He faced the facts, but he did not waver through unbelief. He was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. That's a man who was leading himself through that. We see David throughout the Psalms. He would, he would speak to himself. He would say, oh, my soul, why are you so downcast within me? In our world today, we'll call that insane. <laughs> but actually, God says, speak to yourself. Take yourself by the scruff of the neck and speak to yourself. And, and I think one of the most important things that we need to do in leadership is actually about leading ourselves well. And I've I, I got to tell you, I stand up here this morning um, really echoing Paul's words where he said, follow me as I follow Christ. I don't come here as a, having all the answers. I sat with a friend of mine this week, and we were just talking about this message. And he, he lay back on the couch as if he was in a counseling session. He said, hit me. Tell me all the answers. And he's a, he's a high-capacity leader of leaders. And I just laughed, and I just said, you know darn well I don't come with all the answers, but I'm going there anyway. Because I want to challenge us to be thinking through these things. And follow me as I follow Christ. That's what Paul said. So friends, I really come here humbly this morning, not saying I've got it all figured out by any means. But I've, I've realized the importance of this in my own life. And I don't always get it right. In fact, I probably get it more wrong than right most of the time when I realize the importance of leading myself. But part of leading myself is leading myself through the disappointments of when I don't do as well as I should, and I know I don't. Some time ago, I was in conversation, and, and, and this really sparked through this with a friend, and, and he asked me, he said, what is one of the hardest things, what is one of your biggest challenges in leadership? That was a really big question, isn't it? And I, I started to give an answer. And, and the minute I did, I started to realize that it was actually filtered through, uh, through fears, through shame, through blame. It was all about what others had done or circumstances I'd faced. 
And I, and I had to stop myself and say, you know what, I'm actually going to have to come back to you tomorrow and actually think on this and pray about this for a moment. Because the truth of it is that I'm giving you answers that are, are really covered in all sorts of shroudings of, th- of stuff. When I'm talking about the hardest challenge that I've faced. And it was a great question, but I, I realized that through all of that stuff, I had to push that aside. And, and as I prayed about it, I had to quietly and re- realistically come to this conclusion that the biggest challenge in my life in leadership is leading me. We can all tell the stories either of our own stories or the, the stories we've heard from someone else about that grade three teacher that just was terrible and told you you were never going to amount to anything and, and you're going to be awful and you're never going to finish school. And we've all heard those stories and some of us live with the pain of those stories, right? But in the middle of all of that, we also hear people say things like, God has such a huge call on your life. You go get it. You have a great destiny. Or you're, you're such a great mom. Or you're going to be such a great mom. Or you're going you're gonna to ace that degree. We've all heard those things. And I, I pray we've heard more of those than the others. You're going to be a great leader. And these are wonderful and a whole lot better than that grade three teachers nonsense, right? But I tell you, <laughs> what I've also realized is that in the midst of all those wonderful confirming words and encouraging words, I've realized this truth is so true. Wherever I go, there I am. Write that one down. That's profound. Wherever I go, there I am. And with all the wonderful words of encouragement and promises over what a great future it could be and what a, what a dream it could be and what it could look like and the potential for my life with all of those wonderful encouraging words and promises, I take myself into that place. I take all my baggage, hurts, fears, shame, blame, and everything else that goes with it. I take myself into that. And most of the time, I have every potential to disqualify my future because of me. See, I see, I see that in a lot of people around me. I see that wherever you go, there you are. And it's easy to look and go, yeah, you see. But where I see it most frighteningly is when I stand in front of the mirror. I uh, was reminded of a story of a, of a man who was uh, shipwrecked and he was on a deserted island. And uh, when he was finally rescued, uh, the rescuers came to him and they, they looked around and they saw that there were three little shacks that he had made out of, out of wood and grass and everything. And he looked around and, 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 he said, and they said to him, tell me about the three little structures you've made here. What, what are they all about? And he said, oh, well, this one over here is my house. And they said, okay, that's great. And, and this one here, the, that's my church. Wonderful. And what's the third one? That's the church I used to go to. We laugh and it's funny, but the truth of it is wherever I go, there I am. And the most likely place to be offended, the most likely place to probably end up leaving is, if we're doing it well, actually, that's the irony of this, is church. 
because we're actually confronted with our shortcomings and our, because we're in, in, in amongst family that care for us. And sometimes our expectations of that care can be such that we actually are legitimately disappointed because we're all people, we're all human, we all have our failings. But in so many cases, wherever I go, there I am. And so when I leave one place through offense or unforgiveness or whatever it might be, and I go somewhere else, wherever I go, there I am. And sometimes when we're challenged with the things that reach deep inside and, and, and touch on hard things to deal with, the best thing we can do is stay right where we are. And friends, that's one of the primary things in leading myself. Our friends Bruce and Teresa, just a couple of weeks ago, something that he really challenged us with that I'm really taking to heart and, and, and bringing before the Lord and saying, what do I need to do about this? And, and he said this, there are people waiting. There is a world waiting on the other side of my obedience. My obedience is all about leading myself well. And there are people waiting. There's my family waiting. There's our church family waiting. There's our city of Victoria waiting. There's a world waiting for me to obediently walk into the fullness of what he promised is possible through me. I have to lead myself well. I wanted to take a bit of time this morning to reflect on the life of David. The calling that God had for David, and uh, this is an amazing man in the, in the Bible, and we'll take a moment to reflect on who he was, but what, what happened with David is the calling on David's life would, would change not only his life, but would change the world forever. The personal cost to him and the sheer weightiness of that call on him would crush him if he wasn't adequately prepared, if he wasn't sure of his identity in God, if he wasn't sure of his God, and if he wasn't whole. And it was also, in David's case, going to require a strength of character, a depth of courage, and a whole lot more, more than most people on the face of this planet will ever have to face up to, to live out the calling that God had on his life. And so the truth of it is that God had to do a whole lot in David before he could do a lot through David. God had to do a lot in David before he could do anything through David. And the same goes for you and me. And if we hear that word and if we allow ourselves and submit ourselves in obedience to God's plans and purposes in the midst of the most dire circumstances and trials and everything else in between, and if we see the fullness of God through the mess, then we, like Abraham, can face the facts but be fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he promised he would do. It all starts in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I want to read this out of the New Living Translation. Um, thanks to the team at the back, they should have it up behind me. Um, it is 1 Samuel 16 verse 6 that I'm starting in. Saul is the king of Israel at this point in time. And uh, the interesting thing about Saul is when he, was, uh, when he was chosen to be king, it was very quick after the choosing that Saul was launched into the place of kingship. And Saul lived as king, and he started off well. But what started to happen over time is the flaws in his character started to show. His strength, his willpower, his, 
his ability, and here's the most critical one, his ability to trust God in the hardships of life was challenged to the point that he actually failed the test. And at at a point, God said, "I, I, I have to lift my hand off him for the sake of my people as king, and I need to choose another king. And so God gets a hold of Samuel, his prophet. I love this. Prophetic people. Understand the importance and the significance of the role you play in the world. And when I say prophetic people, I want you to put your hand up and say, I am a prophetic person because I have the Spirit of God living within me. Not the person next to you, you. (laughs) And so Samuel, despite the, the potential danger to him, he steps out and he goes... And when he arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab because God says to him, go to Jesse and one of his sons is the next king of Israel. So this prophet goes ready to anoint the next king of Israel. That's all he knows so far. And Samuel took one look at Eliab, who's uh, one of Jesse's sons, and, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What God's looking for is what lies within. God's looking at the foundations of the building. He's not looking at how nice the building looks on the outside. He's looking at what lies under the surface. Character, character, character. We went through this last week, right? Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned um, Shemiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? See, here's the thing is that it's not going to be us that qualifies ourselves for the next position in life that God has for us. It's God. And it's probably going to be places where most people around us don't even recognize that there's even the potential for us. I know when we stepped into a place of leading in the, in the church, I stood in front of the mirror and I said, God, are you sure? Are you sure you haven't made a mistake? I know Daryl and Dell have been dealing with this. Are you sure, God? Really? Are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse replied. But, and straight away, there's a but. I want to to tell us something here right now. All of those scholarly scholars that that explore the scriptures and dig deep to understand this, they've all come back with this estimation that David at this point in time was between 10 and 15 years old. Remember that. Jesse, get all your sons together. Samuel the prophet comes and there's a big announcement. And if I were Jesse, I quite probably would have said, well, my 10-year-old son surely doesn't count as one of these. (laughs) But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Samuel says this, send for him. 
What? At once. There's an urgency. <laughs> we will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and he was handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. Imagine a 10-year-old boy standing there with all of his older brothers. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of oil he had brought, and he anointed David with the oil. And here's the moment. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. The moment God calls us is the moment he empowers us with what we need for life to lead ourselves well. So let's understand in the leading ourselves well, we have everything we need. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. Let's not miss that sentence because what I find amazing is the man of God, the man of power for the hour comes and Samuel's anointed David and then he walks away. And David, who's possibly 10 years old, is standing there looking up at all his big brothers who are probably scornfully looking at him, going, who do you think you are, pipsqueak? Samuel leaves him on his own. What does David do with that? He's just been told he's going to be the next king of Israel. He's just been anointed. And when he looks back at the history, guess what? Saul was about, just about as young as he was when Saul became the king. So I can only imagine in David's eyes, I've just been anointed the king. Okay, let me get to it. Where do I go? Someone else needs to take care of the sheep and goats. I'm off. Guess what happened? It was at least 15 to 20 years before David actually stepped into the office of being king of Israel. He was 30 years old. So somewhere between the age of 10 and 15, this happens. 15 to 20 years. And so you know what happened in those 15 to 20 years? Everyone embraced David. And they loved him. And they said, we're going to train you up to be the best king that Israel's ever had. We're going to send you to school. We're going to give you the best clothes, the best education. We're going to care for you. And this is going to be amazing, David. Nah, none of that stuff happened at all. From that moment on, David was marked. And I can only imagine in those 15 to 20 years leading up to that moment, how many times David said, really? God, what did you say? Because there ain't no way possible this is ever going to be a reality. And David had to figure out how to lead himself well through the next 15 to 20 years before he actually became what he was anointed when he was a young man. Here's what actually happened. David was stretched to the limits. Here's what I've learned, and I'm continuing to learn in life, <laughs> is living out the dream is a whole lot harder than realizing the dream. For years, Jed and I carried a dream in our hearts about one day leading in the church. And all of a sudden, one day, we arrived at Trinity, and we get this amazing privilege of leading in the church. And it was, it was this that happened. I, it was like, wow, we've realized this dream. And then I stopped, and I went, now what? 
Because the truth of it is actually living out the dream, living out the calling, is really a whole lot harder. And the test of character and the test of how I've led my life well, only then does it really come into play. Is how am I going to do when I have to live under the weightiness of the bigness of the calling that God has on my life? Here's the thing about David. The first thing, the very first thing that qualified him in the first place. If you want to take notes, this is a moment right now. The very first thing that qualified David right from the outset where God says, I look at the heart, is that while David was out with the sheep and the goats, on his own, in the middle of nowhere, he honored the Lord. Not while others were watching. And here's the truth of it. In the quiet place, in the dark place, where no one's around, how am I then? Because that's the true test of who I am. And in the middle of nowhere, where no one was watching him, he had a deep honor, love, and respect for God. He acknowledged him as his Lord and Savior. He acknowledged him as his protector, as his provision. He killed bears and lions as they tried to come and attack the sheep because he saw God as his strength in the middle of battle. No one was watching. No one got to see the magnificence of those moments but God. And because of that, David was anointed. That's what God saw. And God realized in David, as he was looking around to say, who will be the next king? He saw in David a young man that recognized in his own shortcomings, in his own failures, that the only source of his strength for life was God himself. And he realized in David that this man, when it came to the magnificence and the significance and the magnitude of the calling on this man to lead God's people and become king, that it was only going to be a man that fully acknowledged God's leadership in his life, God's provision, God's strength, and was able to fully surrender himself to God when it mattered most, that's who God needed to be in that position. And that's what he saw in David. So what happened in those 15 to 20 years? Obscurity. He thought he was in obscurity with the sheep and lions, and goats, and bears. Suddenly now, he gets rejected by everyone. He gets rejected by his own family. He gets rejected. <laughs> by the king. He gets pursued by the king. He has to go and hide in caves, and he's running for his life. And there's all sorts of rumors being spread about what a terrible person he is. That's obscurity at a whole nother level. That's rejection at a whole nother level. But even in the early, early times, he's just been anointed as the next king of Israel. And they go to war. The Israelites go to war with, uh, with the Philistines. And, and the first thing that happens is Goliath rears his head. And they're all cowering in shame. And where's David, the next anointed king of Israel? Surely he's there in the midst of them all. No, you know where David is? He's out looking after the sheep and goats. And his father calls him and says, leave the sheep and goats for a moment. And he recognizes this worth in David. A lunch boy. <laughs> Go and take lunch for your brothers as they're on the front lines. And so David goes, and he, he arrives there, and he goes, what's the kerfuffle? What's going on? 
And they all look at him and say, haven't you heard? Look at this man, this Goliath, this giant that's opposing us. And David goes, and? (laughs) Don't you know who you are? You're the army of God. Don't you know who he is? And he does the most stupid thing that a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old boy would do. He says, I'll go. But he doesn't do it because he's dumb. He does it because he knows who his God is. And he doesn't, it doesn't matter. That's what made him the next king of Israel. He was blamed for so much. So obscurity, rejection, blame. He was shamed. Rumors and lies were spread about him. And David almost lost his life on countless occasions. A spear thrown by the king himself. Never mind all the other occasions. And then there comes a defining moment in David's life where it's probably what I would picture to be the lowest of the low in these 15 to 20 years. David is probably faced with this moment. And in 1 Samuel 30, we read the story leading up to 1 Samuel story uh, 30. We see the story of how, how David's got a bunch of followers now, disgruntled, distressed, in debt, <laughs> men that are really grumpy, but they've come to David and they recognize that he's rejected, we're rejected, so we might as well follow him. Who wants to lead that kind of group of people? And he's so frustrated in the middle of all of this, David decides he's going to go to the Philistine army and go and see if he can fight alongside them. Just Let's think about this for a moment. David, who was so sure of God against the Philistine army, now he wants to go fight with the Philistine army. <laughs> you know what happens? He gets rejected. Not by only his own people, but he gets rejected by his enemies too. Not even they want him. And he's taken all his men and he's gone to this place over here to go and speak with the Philistines. And so despondent, they come back to this little place that they call Ziklag. And this is home to them. And they get to Ziklag to discover this, that there's another people group called the Amalekites. And they've come to Ziklag while they've all been away because all the men have gone off and they've left the women and the children and their homesteads behind. And they come back to discover that their, their, their city is completely ruined, burned to the ground, and everything that's worth anything has been taken, including their wives and children. He lost all his worldly possessions. His family were gone, maybe dead. And just when you think that's about as worse as it can get, Let's read on. 1 Samuel 30, verse 1 in the NIV. David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day, and now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and the Ziklag, and they had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. The men returned, not knowing that. When David and his men came to Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. What does it take for a man to reach that point? David's two wives had been captured. 
Let's move on from the names there. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. I'm so glad for Fred and George. And <laughs> Let's move on. David was greatly distressed because the men, the only ones that were still for him, were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David, let me stop there for a minute. That is about as low as a man can go. <laughs> your enemies have rejected you. Your family's gone probably dead. You've got no worldly possessions left. And the only people that were for you are now want to kill you. I mean, how, how bad does it get? And here's probably one of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. <laughs> but David found strength in the Lord his God. He went to the only place that he knew that there was someone who was still for him. And that's a man who's leading himself well. I've asked this question often because we get left with that. And I say, well, how did he do it? What did he do? How did he strengthen himself in the Lord? Because that's how we lead ourselves is, is in the how-tos. And I've, as I've kind of worked through that and wrestled through it, I've made some notes for myself over life saying, well, I can imagine that David might have done some of these. I'm not saying this is what David did, but I can imagine this is probably some of what he did, in which case it would be wise for me to look at that and say, well, I could do well in leading myself in some of these areas. I imagine that David strengthened himself by remembering God's love for him. Number one, I imagine that David strengthened himself by realizing that God had a plan all along and what the devil intended for harm, God would always turn for the good. Because when I was 10 years old, God, you told me that I would be anointed king of Israel. So as bad as all of this is, and as much as they're talking of killing me right now, I haven't seen that yet. Therefore, my life's not over. So I'm strengthening myself anew, saying, this is clearly not the end. And I imagine that David strengthened himself by remembering God's promise and his calling. Just like Abraham, he didn't waver through unbelief, but was fully persuaded. And I, I'm convinced that David was strengthening himself by remembering God's faithfulness in the past. God, you did this for me. You did this for your people. You did this. You did that. And he constantly was reminding God, not for God's sake, but for his own sake, drawing courage from deep within to have the faith to keep moving forward. And then he walks out of this place of strengthening himself in the Lord. And he goes to the very same men that wanted to stone him. And he's able to lead them through that to a place of fresh purpose, fresh vision. Then David said to Abiathar in verse 7, the priest, the son of Amahalech, bring me the ephod. That was just a garment that they would wear, which basically signals to everyone else and signals personal intention to say, I want to go and meet with God right now. That's the first thing that he does. And everyone around him recognizes, okay, he's separating himself to be with God. We won't stone him just yet. We'll see what comes out of this. Abiathar brought it to him, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? And he asks the Lord, as a leader, what is the next thing I'm to do? He's leading himself well to the place of his leader who gives him the instructions of what to do in his leadership going forward. 
Pursue them, God answers. You will certainly overtake them and you will succeed in the rescue. So David and the 600 men, let's understand, the Amalekites were thousands upon thousands. David and his, his 600 men who were with him came to the Besar ravine where some stayed behind. For 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine. But David and 400 men continued the pursuit. They found an Egyptian in a field and they brought him to David. They gave him water to drink and food to eat. Part of a cake of pressed figs and two cakes of raisins. He ate and he was revived and he had not eaten any food or drunk any water for three days and three nights. And David asked him, to whom do you belong and where do you come from? He said, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of an Amalekite. My master abandoned me when I became ill three days ago. We raided the Negev and the territory belonging to Judah and the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag. David asked him, can you lead me down to this raiding party? He answered, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my master, and I will take you down to them. He led David down, and there they were scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until evening of the next day, all 400 of them against the thousands. Sometimes we need to fight. In the midst of God's provision, sometimes he provides it, like we see with um, uh, 1 Chronicles 20. What's his name? Thank you. I heard that. Sometimes God delivers it into our hands without us lifting a finger. Sometimes we have to fight. And none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken, including his two wives. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. The man we were going to stone a short while ago, this is our leader. Look, everyone, this is our leader. And then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and who were left behind at the ravine. And they came out to meet David and the people are with him. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But not all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers, even still, he still has troublemakers and evil men amongst his followers. <laughs> they said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, each man may take his wife and children and go. And David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what the Lord has given us. He has protected us. He has handed over to us the forces that came against us. What is he doing? He's consistently giving God the glory. He's consistently keeping his strength of character, his morals, his values in check. He doesn't get drawn by the crowds that say, Well, it's not fair. This is a man who's leading himself well. And he's allowing God to lead him. I'm going to stop there with that. You get the heart of that. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. He says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not... They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. In other words, Paul was saying, I am leading myself 
as well as I can so that I can effectively lead others. That's a noble goal. Church, I want to encourage us to make sure we're leading ourselves well. Here's some of the keys that I've found to be so helpful. And it's so simple. And we skip over it so easily. You want to know the keys the Bible gives us to self-leadership? Go to Galatians 5.22. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And that's where it ends. Ah, and the one right at the end, self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and crucified them there. And since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Saul, who was not leading himself well, that stuff was his downfall. David, leading himself well, walks into the fullness of God's promises. So this morning, I want to I wrap up with a question. We were sitting around our men's time last night, and I, I was listening to a young man talk about some of the things that he's learning. And, and I heard this. You are who you are today. But is that the person you want to be? It really hit me. (laughs) You are who you are today, but is that the person you want to be? What do we need to deal with, friends? What do we need to lead ourselves into or from? Is there unforgiveness? Is there offense? What about my destiny, my calling? What about my family? What about my church family? I am where I am today. That's a fact. But am I where I want to be? Where I need to be? Where God wants me to be? I invite us to just stand together. And I want to pray for us this morning. I realized even the preparing of this that there's so much more that we could have dug into about keys to leading ourselves well. But I want to leave us with this one statement this morning. That the best key to leading myself well is following His lead. Is submitting myself obediently to the lead of God in my life. Because when I'm obedient to His leading, I have all that I need to lead myself well into a place of great victory in life. So I want to invite you to join me this morning in just a fresh surrender to Jesus, a fresh invitation to the Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you for this gift of life. I want to encourage you to just receive the words I'm praying and just receive them over yourself. And and if you want to receive that, just Just walk out of here today having received this and walking in a new reality. God, I thank you for the gift of life. I thank you for the promise that you've given me everything that I need for my life and for godliness in my life. 
I thank you that I have what it takes to lead myself well. And I thank you as I lead myself well. And I take a hold of the fruits of the Spirit. And I apply these things in my life. That everyone around me will see those fruits. They will be evident fruit. And Father, as I lead myself well in trusting you, sometimes into crazy situations that seem impossible. Sometimes having to fight a fight where it might not even seem you're there. And sometimes into fights that were never mine to fight, but always yours. God, in the midst of that, I give you my life afresh this morning. I surrender to you all the areas of my life that I've thought I could do better in. I look in the mirror and I acknowledge that I don't have it all figured out. And I commit myself this morning to allowing you to lead me in leading myself to the greatest possible plans, purposes, and victory that you could ever have imagined or dared dream possible for my life. And Father, I thank you that in the midst of my obedience, as I walk out of these doors today, that my family, my city, my workplace, and every other place that I touch will never be the same again because of my obedience to you. And I thank you, Jesus, that your graciousness and your faithfulness towards me as I've messed up along the way is such that there are still people waiting on the other side of my obedience. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us, you are for us, and you go with us as we leave here today. And Jesus, we thank you that you made this possible in the first place by your commitment to death on a cross. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. And in your precious name, we pray this, and together we say, Amen. God bless you, church. You may take your seats. Thank you. Pray this has been encouraging to you to be able to take yourself by the scruff of the neck, speak to yourself, and go into the dreams that God has for you. Amen. Have a great week. Look forward to seeing you on Wednesday for a time of prayer together. In life.